0: You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Um, You can turn to Acts uh, chapter 27 and we'll read from verses 1 to 44. If you've got a Blue Church Bible, it's on page 1124. So Acts 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramatium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again, and passed the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea after the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmoni we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Sea. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both south and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, They saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Koda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sarutis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will... Happened just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 40 meters deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 30 meters deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against a rock, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach, where they decided to run the ship along a if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and, at the same time, untied the ropes that held their brothers. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The boat stuck fast and would not move, and the sun was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely.
1: Thanks, Lorianne. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump into this passage. Father, we thank you that your word is honest Um, there are points in life which are difficult and painful and we thank you that in those times we can still turn towards you we thank you that even in the raging storms of life you are still god and you're still to be trusted and we pray that as we look at your word now you'd help us to see how paul was able to respond in that way and how we might do the same as well amen Sometimes we get to a topic and we're like, ooh, that's a bit of a difficult one to talk about. And I, I get a little bit nervous. But then I always feel way more sorry for the kids team out there. Because however hard it is to talk about suffering over here, it's even harder to talk about it with some cute little kids. You can imagine, can't you? Next door right now, they're like, why do bad things happen? And they to be like, um. it, it just It can feel difficult, can't it, to explain suffering, to explain pain, to explain something as tough and as hard as the storms of life. And, and teachers, they, they struggle with this, so sometimes you hear certain clichés put out there. Parents struggle with it, so we'll say stuff like, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Or, or maybe you've heard the one where it's like, oh, oh sweetheart, it, life is really tough and sometimes there's rain, but at the end of it, there might be a rainbow. And, and the heart behind those is, is a really wonderful, beautiful thing, isn't it? Of wanting to help people who are struggling, who are sad and who are in pain, see some things that are worth looking forward to in life. There's there's one that's actually made its way into Christianity a little bit. You might have heard this one before, um, which is where people say if God closes a door he'll open a window. And it sounds, it sounds lovely. I mean, it sounds biblical because just a couple of chapters back in Acts 14 we hear about Paul talking of doors opening to gospel opportunities. In Romans 8, 28 we hear Paul talk about how he works all things for the good of those who trust him and love him. So, is that something that we believe? That when hard times come and a door is closed, maybe a window will be opened? Well, well, no, it's not entirely biblical. The problem with it is that not all doors that open are good. When God closes a door, it doesn't mean that he's bad. It doesn't mean that it's a bad opportunity. It doesn't mean that God is punishing you necessarily. It might mean that it is good for you to sit in somewhere that feels dark for a period of time. It might be that God uses suffering to drive you towards him. I mean, that is the wonderful thing about our God, isn't it? That he can use the worst moments in life, the worst moment in history, as an innocent God-man Jesus died on a cross, and use it as something beautiful and wonderful. And, and, and that's what we see in our lives, that not everything great happens just after we suffer. Some of us in a room this size will suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer, And yet, if our God is who he says he is, there's deep meaning to that. That's what Acts 29 is talking about all the way through. Luke, the writer of Acts, has a slightly different way of writing than Jewish writers. Jewish writers, they like writing about land, about deserts, about sheep, about farming. They're land lovers. But Greeks, which is what Luke is, They're seafarers, they love the open sea, they smell that salty air and they think freedom, adventure and opportunity. And in Greek thinking, in Greek literature, in the Greek mind, they would build metaphors from that. So the idea of a ship would be like an individual, the journey would be a metaphor for someone's life, and a storm would be a metaphor for all the hard things that go on in life. Luke writes about something that actually happened but gives us that narrative for us to think through the storms of our life and to see how God can be good in all of them but before we jump into that I'm aware that a whole chapter of chapter 27 is long and it's really warm in here so it's probably helpful to have a brief recap and a brief summary of what Lorian just read over there we've got Paul and he's heading over to Rome to speak to Caesar to share the gospel and he's shoved on a big ship with Julius, the centurion commander. On the ship are a bunch of prisoners heading towards Rome. Some of them will probably work as slaves to the people who are in charge in Rome. Some of them may well and end up in the gladiator colosseum as slaves to fight other people and to die for the entertainment of the people in Rome. There's a load of cargo, there's a load of grain that's there, the soldiers are there, and there's also some sailors. And they sail out to head towards Rome, and it gets bad. Very, very quickly, and it gets so bad that as we read later on, Paul says, "Let's not continue to head in this direction." Everyone ignores him, and it gets to the point where everyone has lost all hope. It's dark and it's terrible. Paul encourages them and says that I've had a vision from an angel of the Lord who stood by me that we are not going to die, but the ship will be wrecked. Uh, Which is, I don't know how encouraging that is, but it's still somewhat encouraging that they'll make it. Uh, And then they hit 14 days of darkness. So more storms, more difficulty going forward. At the end of that period, the sailors, the sailors, the people who know the ship, who know how to sail, decide to abandon the ship and leave everybody else behind. Paul tells them that they can't do that, lets the soldiers know that this is a bad idea and that everyone will die if the sailors leave. And the soldiers, Roman soldiers, who are known for their discipline and be able to handle difficult situations, in their panic, self-sabotage the situation and cut away the lifeboats so everybody, everybody is stuck now. And then everyone seems to be despairing even more. And Paul tells them, eat, have some encouragement because we will still make it to shore because the Lord has promised that. So everyone eats, they feel a little bit more encouraged, they throw off every last bit of weight of the boat away, including the grain, hoping that they'll make it to shore. And finally, they hit land and they're getting ready to make it to shore, and the boat starts to break up. And as the boat is breaking up, the last bit you'll see in that passage is, it's typical that if you're a Roman soldier, if you lose your prisoner, you pay for it with your life. So that's why right at the end of that passage, it says that the Romans could see that the ship was gonna break up, the prisoners might escape, so they thought, let's do mass genocide and just kill them or all of them. Because that was the best option. Otherwise, their lives would be lost. But instead, because God is sovereign, Julius says, no, 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 we're all going to make it to shore. And at the end, they all make it there, safe, but exhausted, having gone through all of these different problems. I mean, it does sound quite dramatic, doesn't it? There's betrayal, there's exhaustion, there's people at despair, there's people abandoning their posts. It is just a really awkward description of all the different struggles of life that we might experience. And it's so helpful for us to see, isn't it? Because we can read Paul. We can particularly read the Pauline epistles, where he says stuff like, For me to live is to die, is Christ, and to die is gain. Something as big as that. And Paul can feel like a superhero with great, deep theological knowledge. But if you look at this passage here, you get to see his devotional life. You get to see how he's trying to trust God in everything. And hopefully, that will make us encouraged. So three points today. The first one being, suffering is complex. The second one being, suffering can be a help. And the third one being, suffering will be transformed. Point number one, suffering is complex. Usually, I'll point out something in the passage for you to see. But if you read that whole chapter, do you see something that is actually missing from this passage? Completely missing is... At no point does Paul get told why he's going to suffer. At no point does God say, hey, Paul, here's a vision, but also this is why you're going to be in darkness for 14 days. This is why there's going to be a shipwreck. This is why the centurions are going to think about killing all of you. There is no explanation for all the pain and the difficulty that is going on in Paul's mind. He knows that he's going to make it to Rome. He knows that God's purposes will be achieved, but the actual details of every single bit of suffering, there's no explanation, is there? think i think that's why most people who really think about christianity but then go i can't i can't follow jesus that's why they struggle with it because there's this idea that god is good that he is loving that he is in control of all things so the question then has to be why do bad things happen and sometimes we just don't have the answers Um, stephen fry um, who is a excellent commentator on the world around him but a non-christian was recently asked what would he say to god because he doesn't believe in god what would he say to god if he ever saw him face to face and he talked about suffering he said this bone cancer in children what's that all about how dare you how dare you create a world where there is such misery that is not our fault it's not right it's utterly utterly evil Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates the world which is full of injustice and pain? Yes, parts of the world are very splendid, but it also has insects whose entire life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and to make them blind. They eat outward from the eyes. Why? Why would you do that to us? You could have easily made a creation in which it didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. It's perfectly apparent, that if there is a God, he is monstrous. I mean, that seems to be a logical bit of thought, isn't it? Stephen Fry is very eloquent, and he's painting a scenario where if God is in control of everything, if God is meant to be good as well, then there's suffering that happens. And we do not know the reason for all of that suffering. So therefore, that God can't be good. Or... He just doesn't know what he's doing. He's not actually in control. Or it's just one that I don't want to worship. It makes, it makes somewhat logical sense as you follow it. Except for one thing. This is the common one that we get asked often as Christians. How could we, as finite human beings, know everything? Know every situation and the reasons for why they happen? In, in history past, it's been accepted that if we know this much, but God knows everything then there is a possibility that there's a reason for why difficult things happen, even if we can't explain it. That's the point, isn't it? Suffering is complex in that way. Not to minimize it, but to give it some picture. It's like when my daughter, who is two, wants blackberries. I know. She absolutely loves those blackberries that are there. And sometimes Daddy has to turn to her and go, no more blackberries. And she can't understand why. She has got no concept in her mind of diabetes. She's got no concept in her mind that she needs protein. She's got no concept of anything else. She just wants those little black balls of joy. And she's like, why is daddy being mean and horrible to me? Because she doesn't have any concept of that. But we are like that, aren't we? We are finite human beings who do not know everything. And we're going to God. how can we possibly endure this suffering? Why would you put us through that? Isn't it reasonable for us to assume that we do not know everything, but God does? That is exactly what we see in the Bible, in the book of Job. Job gets battered one time. There is no explanation to him as to why that happens. And then he gets battered again, and there's no explanation. And at the end of the book, it doesn't tell you. It tells you that Job never finds out why he goes through all of that suffering. Never explained to him. That may well be our lives. One practical point point from this is, if you're a Christian, it might be right for us. It might be honest. It might be helpful for us. If our non-Christian friends ask us, why am I suffering to say, I don't know? If they turn to you and go, you believe in Jesus, so, so why has my partner betrayed me? Why am I going for a divorce? I think it's okay to say, I don't know. If they go, why has my family member just found out that they have cancer? I think it's okay for us to say, I don't know. And I think if they go up to you and go, why is it that I'm going through something so horrible that I do not know how I can even face tomorrow? I think it's okay for us to say, I don't know, because suffering is complex and God knows this much, but we know that much. The question then, which we'll explore for the rest of this passage is, is that God good? Is he trustworthy? So suffering is complex because we don't know everything. Suffering is also complex because the little bit that we do know is incredibly confusing. So there is no explanation in this passage as to why Paul will suffer, but there is clearly an explanation of what Paul thinks of suffering. Look with me at verses 21 to 25. Look at what Paul says. I'll read it to you. After they have gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice and not sailed to Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and to whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Paul is saying, I've seen a vision from God, from the angel of the Lord, telling me that we're going to make it, that we're going to be safe. What's that saying? That God is in complete control. This is one of the really common questions that I get from all of our friends who are trying to work through the reformed doctrines of God being God who works through everything, of God being sovereign. If God controls everything, does does that mean that we need to not try anymore? Because I mean, in this passage, they're really worried. They're like, oh my goodness, this storm, this is horrible. Paul says, don't worry, the Lord is in control of everything. Paul doesn't go, so, so we'll just give up. Let's go snorkeling. Why don't we just jump in the sea could we'll watch some whales? God's got it all. He's in control anyway, isn't he? It, that's not what we see, is it? We don't see that type of mindset of God knows everything, so let me not try. I mean, if that's the case, then, then, then why confess our sins? If that's the case, why share the gospel? There's that pillar right there in the Bible, very clearly, and that pillar in Paul's actions. God is in control, but look with me at verses 31 to 32. Our actions also matter. The sailors are about to abandon ship. And Paul says, verse 31, Then Paul said to the centurions and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the rope that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Why is suffering complex? Because we don't understand everything. It's also complex because the two things that we do understand feel like a head melt. God is in complete control of everything, and your actions matter. We, we think it's one or the other, don't we? Surely if God is in complete control, then my actions don't really matter. Or if my actions do really matter, then God can't be in control, because I, I can undo his plans. And the Bible says, no, nah, it's both. It's both entirely. Paul's theology, Paul's actions here, show us that it is both, which is really, really hard to understand and yet is the most freeing thing. Because that means that if we believe that God is in control of everything, if the Bible is true and what it says is accurate, then when we get things wrong, we can give them towards God. It means that we can trust him in every situation because he has the power to to hold everything in his hands. And again, if he knows this much and we know this much, it's reasonable that he's able to work those two things together. Suffering is incredibly complex and it's hard for us to understand. Point number two, suffering can be a help. If you go past verse 33 to go to verse 34, we see something else there that Paul says to encourage the soldiers, the prisoners, and the sailors. Just, just think about this at this moment. The soldiers have just cut the ropes. They've done self-sabotage, so everybody is stuck. The sailors have betrayed them and said, I, I'm going to leave you to be dead. The prisoners are aware that they're probably going to either die here or get to Rome and die. Everybody is exhausted. And some people haven't eaten for 14 days. So it is pretty grim. Everyone is really, really downcast. What does Paul say to them? He makes a promise to them. He encourages them to eat and says that not a hair on your head will be harmed. This points back to another piece In Luke chapter 21, verses 16 to 18, where Jesus says, not a hair on your head will be harmed. He says this, it will come up on the board. Jesus is speaking. Luke has written both books, so he's recording this as well. And Jesus says to his disciples, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And they'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair on your head will perish that's a bit confusing isn't it so some of us are going to be put to death but we'll keep all the hairs on our head well, I mean, what, how does that look does that mean that when I go in my casket I'm just going to have a really good head of hair like, is, do we suddenly have the superpower to regrow hair is that what happens it's, just, it's a really weird thing for Jesus to say except the description of him protecting all the hairs on our heads is a description of an intimate God who knows all the details of our lives and cares about us It's not to tell us that all of our hair will regrow. I'm losing too much of mine at the moment, which is worrying me. But rather that God cares about our situations, that he's in there with us, that he isn't just going to save us from suffering, but that he might use suffering to help us to lean on him all the more, to help us to remind ourselves of what is important and why we want to follow him. I mean, you know we struggle with that, don't you? Every Sunday, we hear a gospel message that warms our hearts. Every Sunday, we sing songs about how God is more worthy than anything else. Every Sunday, we have a fellowship time where we encourage each other and urge each other to follow after God. And we say, we say that our value is that we want to follow God more than anything else. And and then the pressures of Monday come along. Deadlines hit. Kids need rushing in and out of different situations. Family problems start to mount on us. Pressures and pressures rise. And even though we have said on a Sunday that we value God more than anything else, it is very easy for things to push that out of the way and for us to struggle. And hear me, I'm not picking on us as Christians. That's something that all of us, all of humanity struggles with. There's a whole area of sociological research that looks at this, and they found that human beings are terrible at effective forecasting. All that means is we say something really matters, and then we don't live it out. And we don't need experts to tell us that. We know that's the case, don't we? I say I really care about my health, but my diet is mostly fried chicken and chocolate. Uh, You know, some of us will say we really, really want to work towards being careful about our finances and our future and saving and caring for people, but we just struggle with how we spend things in different ways. Uh, And do you know the world has a really cool way uh, of solving that? Have you come across this? There's something called the tombstone principle, where because everybody says they value something, but then they struggle to live it out... um, uh, a psychologist said, why don't you think about your tombstone? Why don't you slow down for a second? We can all do it at the same time right now. And think about what six words, what 15 words you would like written on your tombstone at the end. Because that will help you really prioritize what you, what you value. I mean, I'm, I'm suggesting to you that on my tombstone, I'm not hoping it says, here lies Eric, he drove a Tesla. I, I don't imagine that on my tombstone, I'm saying, here lies Eric, he earned six figures. It's a really helpful tool to help you remind yourself what really matters in the world. Well, that might be a good tool, but it is nothing compared to the way that God uses suffering as well. Suffering is a help that reminds us of our need to lean on God in every situation. It might be a good way for us to think about this week, what do I really value? But if we struggle to do that, The Lord may be so kind as to use suffering as a help to go, I am in your situation. I know the number of hairs on your head. I care about you and I love you and I am drawing you back towards me. Suffering can be a wonderful help. Final point. Suffering isn't just complex. Suffering isn't just a help. Suffering will be transformed. Look, God's promises make it. Everyone makes it to shore in the end clutching bits of wood, shipwrecked with a half a lung full of water. They make it to the end. And Paul describes his suffering as light and momentary in 2 Corinthians. So this is a guy who has been beaten, who has reflected on his past mistakes, who has been shipwrecked three times, three times. And he says it is light and momentary. Why? Because he knows that his suffering has been transformed by God. Look at me one more time at verse 26 23 and let me read it to you. Paul says, last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood beside me. Paul belongs to the Lord and the Lord stands with him. Do you see that? That Our suffering is not, oh, you just got to grit your teeth and get through this. It's not, oh, this this is something you've got to put up with to impress God. It's not just, this is something that's silly and you're being punished for what you've done. No, no. Our suffering is a situation where God comes to stand with us and remind us that we belong to him and that we can walk through things with him. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, we're told, therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us firmly hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus stands in our situations he knows our experiences. He knows our struggles. He knows our pains. And he transforms them. He doesn't just give them meaning. He doesn't just make them helpful. He transforms them into something wonderful and something beautiful. I'll give you an example. Um, there's going to be a picture on behind me um, of a place in Newcastle. I, I, I went to Newcastle for university. My wife and I met each other there. We stayed there for about 10 to 15 years. And I can't walk past this bar in Newcastle without feeling sad, overwhelmed, and incredibly joyful to God at the same time. Because for me, Newcastle is the place that I went to go be a student. It's the place I went to go and be part of a church plant. It's the place that I went to then get baptized and, and get to know people there. It's the place where I met the love of my life and got married and saw a bunch of students as well get married and have kids. And it's the place where I got really sad when my wife and I turned to each other and said, we're struggling to have kids and for five years we watched as all of our friends had children and there was a baby room in the church and it was wonderful and at the same time every time we talked to somebody and smiled at them it was gut-wrenching as well because we were like well what's going on in our lives and and it's the place where I remember one Sunday my wife being so sad and crying and going I don't know if I can get to church this Sunday, because I want to be happy for all of the church family. I love them, but I, 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 I don't know if I can do this. This is just really, really painful. And it's the place where we got tested in, in the city centre for our infertility, and then found out that it's probably unlikely that we're going to be able to have kids. And then we walked down to a pub, a bar called the Tyneside Cinema, and just stood there, and couldn't look at each other, but just quietly, just cried. Um, as we were just sitting there struggling and being really sad. Now, I, I, I share that story, and I want to be very careful here, not because it works out in the end and there's a happy ending, and God has been kind, and we have got three kids. It's wonderful for us in that situation. But, but that might not be the case for everybody. People may well still find themselves struggling on whatever goes on. But here's the thing. Those five years were rubbish, for us it was painful and not enjoyable at all but here's some of the things that did change for us that we learned through that number one it gave us a deeper love for church family we we thought at that point that we could not have our own physical kids but we were bonded to church family and so we invested in them we looked for ways to be vulnerable and to share that with other people and and you need to know that like for us uh, we love church so much more now than we would have done before we went through that stuff because we, we see that they're our church family that we have been bonded to, that God has loved us for and drawn us to. Number two, it gives us a deeper love of Christ because however much in those five years we desperately wanted kids is nothing compared to how much God, the Father, loves God the Son. They've been in imperfect relationship for eternity past and yet... God the Father happily allowed the Son to die on a cross for us. And yet the Son was happy to go on the cross and die for us and have the full wrath of God poured against him so that that relationship was torn for our sake. So however much I wanted that situation is nothing compared to how much God loves us. It deepened our understanding of that and made it such a wonderful thing that every time I walk past Tyneside Cinema, I am a little bit too overwhelmed that I can't quite take a photo of it, but it, it, it helps me remind me of how good and how wonderful God is. And the final thing that it might have done, I hope, I hope, it might have done for me, is, you might not believe this, but, but when I was a bit younger, I was quite an arrogant person. I can see all your faces. None of you look shocked by that. That's painful. Anyway, but, um, but hopefully... That process softened me. Hopefully, when I speak to you and I hear of your suffering in your life, hopefully that, that, that makes me more empathetic towards you, more quick to plead to the Lord for your situations, and more caring about what happens, because we all know that suffering and difficulty happens. That's what we're seeing in this passage, that suffering is not pointless, and actually the Lord uses it, and actually is transformed to help us not just go through something, but to worship God for his goodness of who he is. Suffering is something that is used by God in a wonderful way. Atheists' only solution is suffering is pointless. Islam tells us we must endure suffering to impress Allah. Buddhism says you must accept suffering in order to achieve enlightenment. Christianity tells us that God enters into our lives and endures suffering for our sake. He stands with us. And so anything that you experience has got meaning and has been transformed for his sake. I'm highly aware as I've given you that story that some of you in this room are going through much worse than I could imagine or say. And you might be thinking, great for you, Sounds like your storm lasted a little while and I'm still in the middle of mine. I am barely clinging on. I am drowning. I've got those soldiers, they're ditching me. I've got some sailors who are not helpful. I, 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 I can't cope. What have you got to say in that situation? Well, maybe three bits of application from what Paul is saying here. He is suffering far more than what I could imagine at least. And he points out some things that are helpful for us that we might, might want to look at and might want to do number one as an application as you might be struggling right now look to the friendships God has provided do you notice that in this passage Paul looks like the only person who is full of peace and poise and it's dangerous isn't it because we can look at this and just think Paul sometimes looks a little bit like a superman that he can say to live his Christ, to die his gain that he can, he can endure all this suffering but he, he isn't Jesus he's a normal human being Yes, he planted great churches. Yes, he wrote half of the New Testament. Yes, he's got a brain so big. But, but he's just a human being. So look with me at verse 3 at what he asks. He asks for the assistance of friends. If Jesus has the assistance of his friends and his disciples... If Paul, somebody so great and able to achieve so many things, asks for the assistance of his friends, can I encourage you, City Church, wouldn't it be right, healthy, and good for us to seek friends as we struggle as well? Look, all research tells us that since we are more connected than ever electronically, we are more disconnected than ever relationally. It's just there constantly for all this stuff. And can I say to you that this biblically tells us that it's a good thing for us to seek friendships. You may well get hurt. You may well get betrayed by people around you, but it does not change the fact that we are built for relationship and that building into friendships is a really good thing. Point number two, it might be good for us to pray through our pain, to remind yourself that Jesus stands with you. We see that in chapter 27, verse 23, but we also see that in the Psalms. Do you know what's really cool about the Psalms, particularly book three of the Psalms, is that they're just places where there's raw emotion where people process their ups and their downs, where people are honest about how they are disappointed with God. Have you ever expressed in your life when things are painful, your disappointment towards God? Well, if you haven't, would you read Psalm 73? Because it's really cool. Asaph talks about his pain. He talks about his struggling. He vents at God. And you know what doesn't happen? God doesn't melt him. God doesn't destroy him. In fact, That that becomes a piece of the Bible and scripture that we look at now. And Asaph prays through that stuff and gets to the end to be able to praise God. That may have been a 10-year process, we don't know. But what's amazing is he starts with praying through his disappointments and his struggles. If God knows this much and we know this much, then I think it's right for us to take stuff towards him. Pray to him through that stuff. And let me encourage you, it's okay to be disappointed. It's just not okay to stay there. Use your friends, use the Bible, use the character of God to help you get to a stage of where you're able to praise him, but do start with your honesty and your emotion. Lastly, remind your heart that Jesus will transform your suffering. Let me read one more time that bit in Hebrews. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. That word for temptation could also be translated as endured. That Jesus suffered for our sake, that Jesus endured for us, that Jesus went through storms for our sake. I might not have a story that can relate to or help you in any way, shape, or form. I, I completely acknowledge that. But the Bible tells us that Jesus does. And I know, I know when we say that, we're like, yeah, but hang on a minute, Eric. Jesus does not know what it is like for me as my marriage is breaking down and divorce is around the corner. Jesus does not know what it is like for me as my boss makes my life horrible and a working week, and I need this job to be able to make it through because I need to pay my bills. Jesus does not know what it is like to, to face the pain of looking at my own child and thinking, what do I do to protect them? What do I do to help them in a world that is constantly against them? And you might be right. All of your experiences, all of your external experiences are entirely unique. No one else in the world has those same experiences. But the core of your suffering, the core of your suffering is the same for all of us. It's something that Jesus feels more than any of us. Do you feel unfulfilled longing? Do you feel loneliness? Do you feel deep disappointment? alienation, the sense of being abandoned by God. Jesus knows it all. No one has ever experienced that level of disappointment and that level of wrath poured out on them than Jesus did for our sake by the Lord. And yet he did it willingly for us. So let me finish by asking you this. Are you in a storm right now? Chances are, yes. And if you're not, you probably will be in a few years' time. Until we see the Lord face to face, we're not going to have everything wiped away. And what we see here in this passage is Paul gets a promise from God that he will make it to the end, but he doesn't make it comfortably, does he? He doesn't make it well refreshed and ready to share the gospel in Rome. He makes it clutching on to a piece of wood, exhausted, poorly fed, struggling, and all of that has been used for God's glory. So again... If you are struggling, if you are suffering, the Lord knows it is far more complex than we could imagine. The Lord uses it. It could be for your help. And finally, the Lord will transform that into something wonderful and glorious because he uses the worst things in the world to become beautiful for our sakes. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that storms can become something that are wonderful because of you. We thank you that the worst moment in history becomes something that we celebrate every single Sunday because of you. We thank you that an instrument of torture and murder, the cross, becomes a symbol that we look towards for hope because of what you have done. And as we deal with our own personal situations and cry out to you, asking you, how long, oh Lord? Asking, why won't you take things away? Would you help us to lean on you all the more? Because your character is unlike any other. You are not the God that Stephen Fry described. You are the God who gets down into our situations, gets to know us, saves us, loves us, and remains in those situations for us. And so we pray as we sing right now, would you help us to lean on you and to trust in you in all that we're doing. It's in your name we pray. Amen.